If you would, open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Judges. Once again, Judges chapter 9. Actually, we are going to begin reading this morning in Judges chapter 8, uh, near the end of the chapter. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we have been studying uh, this Old Testament difficult book of the Bible uh, for the last several weeks. And this morning we come to a passage that, to be honest with you, to be frank with you, I would have loved to skip. Probably won't be the last time that I say that statement in the book of Judges. Uh, I knew that was coming. Many of you knew that was coming. But we're here this morning because we believe, I believe, that all Scripture is profitable for us. And so the Lord in His wisdom wants to teach and to remind His people of something here. Now you'll notice that the, the insert does not contain the passage this morning. You're going to have to use uh, your Bibles or you can grab a Bible off of the back cart if you don't have a copy of God's Word. And that's because this passage is long, and you might be wondering, well, Nate, why don't you just skip reading it then? Uh, why don't you just explain it? Well, number one, I'm not sure my explanation and recounting of the passage would be any shorter than the actual reading of the passage. That's a preacher syndrome that happens a lot. But secondly, and more importantly, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active. And Paul told Timothy, the young pastor, to not forsake the public reading of Scripture, but to devote himself to it because he recognized this mysterious reality. And so there is a very real sense, brothers and sisters, where I could simply read this and then sit down and invite Leandra back up to lead us and to continue on, and it would still benefit you. The Lord would still be at work in His Word, and maybe some of you would like me to do that this morning, but I'm not, so don't get excited. I'm going to talk about it. I am going to read it, but I want to remind us of where we are in the book. I know some are, people are in and out, and you kind of miss where we are in the flow of the book. I want to first recognize, before we read this passage, before I read it to you, that this account in the history of the book of Judges is a unique one. And it's unique in the sense that the cycle that we have seen so many times prior in the book of Judges is not here. That pattern of the, the, the people of God abandoning the Lord of enemies oppressing them and them crying out to the Lord finally for his help and the Lord sending a deliverer. There are no outside enemies here. There's only enemies within. There's no crying out. There is no judge called and commissioned by God, only an illegitimate king who rises to power. But what is constant in this passage that we've seen before is Israel's abandonment and forgetfulness of Yahweh. This is a dark passage. 
It's a dark period. It's a forgettable period in the history of God's people. And yet, for some reason, it is given so much airtime, so much play in the book of Judges. It's as if the Lord wants to make sure that His people remember the truths that are contained here. Now, in this chain of leadership, of spiraling downward leadership in the book of Judges. Remember the last leader we looked at, for those of you who were here last week, was Gideon. We actually spent a few weeks on Gideon. And Gideon leaves a mixed legacy. He's commended in the book of Hebrews, in the hall of faith, and yet he was one who struggled to end well. But he leaves 71 sons. How many daughters? We don't know, but 70 sons through his wives, his many wives, and then one son through his concubine. And the question that lies before us as we get into this passage is, who will rise up? What will Gideon's legacy be? Who will the Lord raise up? That's the question that remains and that we, were go- that we are going to, that God's Word is going to answer this morning. And so listen carefully as I read for a few minutes. Now, we typically read for, we, excuse me, we typically stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to actually encourage you to sit. It's going to take about nine minutes, no lie. And I don't want the standing and the fidgeting and the, uh, the aching of your legs to be a distraction. I just want you to sit and listen and follow along in God's Word. Uh, Judges chapter 8, starting at verse 33. Uh, We're going to read this whole account. Uh, Listen carefully as I read. This is God's holy Word. Judges chapter 8, verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and he said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you? That all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. 
When it was told to Jotham, he went and he stood on the top of Mount Gerizim and he cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? And then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon." Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If then you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Millo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Millo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers." And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops. And they robbed all who passed them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. And Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives. And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and who are we of Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam, and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words, of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled, and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an, am- an ambush in the field. 
that in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And we and the people who are with him come out against you. You may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. Gael spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. And Gael went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gates. And Abimelech lived at Arumah. And Zebul drove out Gael and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field and Abimelech was told, he took his people and he divided them into three companies and he set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city and so he arose against them and he killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it and he raised the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard it, they entered the stronghold in the house of Elbereth. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, and he and all the people who were with him, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand, and he cut down a bundle of brushwood, and he took it up, and he laid it on his shoulder, and he said to the men who were with him, what you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle, and following Abimelech, they put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them. So that all the people in the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and the men and the women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower, and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and he said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman has killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the young men saw, of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his own home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also committed against his father, and God also made all the evil of all the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. After Abimelech, there, after Abimelech there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, 
the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havath-Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kamon. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you know this already. I've shared this, I think, in a few different contexts. But I have a small collection of, of rocks. I don't collect rocks. But I have a small collection of rocks, of rocks that I've picked up in various places that serve for me as memory markers. I have a rock from the Yellowstone River when I went fly fishing with two buddies in my 40th year. I have a rock from Rocky Creek up in Cedro Willie when I was a 17-year-old kid and I went trout fishing with my father on one of the most memorable trips of my life. I have a rock from the beaches of Long Island, Washington on a family vacation that was particularly sweet for our family some years ago. I want to tackle this passage, and I want to retell it for you. It's a lot to take in. Thanks for bearing with that long reading. Your mind may be kind of trying to find out what exactly went on in all of that, and I want to retell it in a way that's a little different than usual, at least not the normal way that I preach In fact, I wish I had entitled this sermon, A Tale of Three Stones, or A Tale of Three Rocks. Yeah, it's actually three trees that are mentioned in our passage, and we'll get to those trees and what they mean. But in the greater context of the Bible, in the greater context of what God is doing in in redemptive history, It's three literal rocks, three stones that remind us of three things. They remind us of what we're called to, of what we so easily succumb to, and the consequences of sin. And then lastly, they remind us of the glory of the gospel of grace. Three stones that provide a frame for us to remember this history, this dark history in the life of God's people. Let me start with the first stone, the stone of witness. The stone of witness. This first stone is not literally mentioned here in this passage, but it's pointed to. Let me explain. Gideon is barely out of the grave. Excuse me, he's barely in the grave. And the whoring of God's people, as the Bible calls it, the whoring of God's people begins. Now, we've seen this before, but this is to a depth that is new and that is dark. Verse 33, they made Baal Bereath 
their God. Now Baal, that we remember Baal. Baal was the Canaanite god of storm. Baal was also a moniker that was attached to all sorts of local deities in the promised land and in the idolatry of the promised land. But Berith, Berith is the Hebrew word for covenant. For covenant. And so what does this little detail mean in verse 33? What it means is that Israel is not just flirting with another deity. Israel is all in. They've abandoned the covenant with the God of the universe, a concept that's so important in the Scriptures, that's so important to God's people. They've abandoned the covenant, and that Lord, the God who time and time again, who had rescued them from their enemies, and they've attached themselves, they've committed themselves with a God who is no God at all. Now up until this point, the judgment of God upon His people for this kind of idolatry has come primarily at the hands of of foreign invaders, right? God invites foreign invaders to come and to bring His people to their knees and back to their senses. But here, here notice there's no outside influences. There's only themselves. And left to themselves, what does Israel do? Do they thrive or do they bring disaster upon their own heads? Well, this this enters Abimelech. Abimelech. Abimelech, whose name, remember, means my father is king, perhaps thought that it was his destiny, though Gideon never ascended to kingship in the promised land. Maybe he thought it was his destiny to achieve such a title. And I would suspect that this aspiration of Abimelech was fueled by a strained relationship with his brothers, with his family. You see, Abimelech would have no doubt been on the outside of the family. After all, Abimelech was an illegitimate son born of a slave girl from Shechem, a city that was just over 30 miles north of Jerusalem. And it's that little detail that catches our attention, or at least ought to catch our attention. It would have caught the attention of God's people, the Jewish people, as they heard this story being read to them. Shechem, you see, is is significant in the history of God's people because it was at Shechem where God first appeared to Father Abraham to promise him the land that they are now living in. You can find that story back in Genesis chapter 12. It was Shechem where Israel worshiped with Joshua after entering the promised land in Joshua 24. In other words, Shechem had all the feels for God's people. What I mean by that was Shechem was a place of promise. Shechem was a place of revival. Shechem was a place of commitment. After all, the covenant, the covenant was renewed at Shechem. 
There the people proclaimed in the end of Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and we, his voice we will obey. If we go back there to Joshua chapter 24, starting at verse 26, let me read this. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and he set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you if you deal falsely with your God. A stone of witness, erected in a sacred and holy place as a reminder of God's covenant and commitment of Israel's privilege and responsibility. And now a man from that sacred place, a man from Shechem with aspirations to rule, he appeals to the leaders of Shechem and will he honor the history? Will he remember? But wait, he's not even the rightful heir. Yahweh's not calling him to lead, nor is he qualified, and we'll learn this in just a moment, that he's not even qualified in the least bit. And yet Abimelech stands and says, guys, guys of Shechem, I'm, I'm one of you. you. You need a king. Chaos is going to reign with all these potentials. Support me in my campaign. I'm the one that you need. And they do so, don't they? And their support becomes blood money. How far Israel has fallen. That's maybe the first application for us as we think about what this text means for us as a church, for us as a people. One of the things I think that we see this morning and are reminded of is the importance of qualified, strong, leadership. People lose their way when they choose poor leaders. Leadership is so important. Every spring, we talk about the significance and the importance in this church as we open up nominations for leadership. We need leaders who will lead us to remember who will lead us and feed us in the gospel of grace. Leaders who will protect us from ourselves. Will Abimelech be this kind of leader? Well, that brings us to the second stone, the stone of wickedness. The stone of wickedness. Verse 5, and he went to his father's house at Ophrah and he killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. It takes us like seven seconds to read that phrase, but do not miss the gravity of what was going on in the life of God's people. With the stone of witness... Long forgotten, the writer here in the book of Judges is forced to reveal how low Israel 
has descended, how much their depravity is thriving. Revival in Shechem has been replaced by ruthless sacrifice. That's the picture we have here, one after the other. The sons of Gideon, one after the other, the sons of Gideon, Jeroboam, the hero of a generation before, were brought in. And the, the Bible doesn't tell us how they were executed, except for it was one stone. Almost as if to say they were brought in one after one, had their heads laid on a stone, almost in a religious ceremony. Maybe it was a religious ceremony to this idolatrous Baal. And these brothers were slaughtered. It's a terrible, terrible dark scene. And one son of Gideon escapes, Jotham. And not coincidentally, his name means Yahweh is perfect. And Jotham doesn't just disappear. No, he hangs around. And after this brutal rise to power, as this illegitimate crowning is taking place, Jotham, who is safely out of reach, has this speak now or forever hold your peace moment where he interrupts this illegitimate ceremony. He's perched high above the people, using the acoustics of that geography to his advantage, and he indicts them for, his act, for their actions. And oh yeah, he stands on Mount Gerizim. Remember, where God, or excuse me, where Joshua renewed the covenant with God's people after the defeat of Ai. And he does so through a parable. It's the first parable that we have in the Bible. An olive tree rich in oil, a fig tree ripe with fruit, and a vine full of wine, all supremely qualified and yet uninterested in ruling over the trees. These are presumably the sons of Gideon who were slaughtered, who were not rising up in opposition, who were not fighting over the crown, but by all indications were living peacefully in their city. And then there is the bramble. He's not really a tree, not really a vine. It's more a thorn bush, the bramble is. It has no value except to be used to light a good fire. It offers no shade, though it claims to offer shade. It's just about worthless, and yet it's eager. And of course, this in the story is Abimelech. If you're happy with what you've done here, Jotham says, if you're happy, if you think you've been honorable, which of course he knows that they haven't been, then may you get what you deserve. And get what they deserve, they do. And we read about it just a minute ago. Abimelech's rule lasted for three years before the wheels started to come off. Those who put him in power, having bankrolled his wickedness, are now destabilizing his rule. They switch allegiances and they cause Abimelech himself to respond on this rampage of revenge. And that whole campaign, again, is, is dark and it's dirty and it's violent and thousands die in horrible acts. 
all because of the stone of wickedness. The consequences of the people's abandonment of God and his ways is now in full living color. Did you notice that in this entire passage that we read, not once is God's covenant name, Yahweh, translated into English by LORD in all caps. Not once does it appear in this account. Why? Because God's people have clearly distanced themselves from their covenant Lord. He's out of their minds, he's out of their hearts, and in his absence, chaos ensues. And that brings us to the final stone this morning, the stone of judgment. The stone of judgment. A a question for us to ask, particularly in light of what I just spoke of, is, is where is God in all of this? Yeah, the covenant Lord is not mentioned. The people have covenanted themselves with another God. So is he gone? Is he absent? No. And the enduring truth, I think, that this passage reminds God's people of for all time, and you here this morning, is that even when God seems absent in your life and in your chaos, he's not. He never is. As chaotic as things might seem, things are never out of control. And there are two verses that give us an important glimpse of this. Verses 23 and verse 56. Look at verse 23. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And we say, whoa. (laughs) We scratch our heads at that one, don't we? The vehicle of God's judgment is a supernatural one. No no wonder these leaders of Shechem who were so high on Abimelech just three years earlier, no wonder they, they flip on a dime. Because behind the curtain, something very different is going on. As the hearts of men are being turned are being moved, even in the chaos, even in the wickedness. Explain that, Pastor Nate. (laughs) I can't give a full explanation of that. I can just marvel at the mystery, at the sovereignty of the Lord. Then in verse 56, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing 70 brothers. This is the point, brothers and sisters. When God seems absent, he's not. He's at work, even using the evil intentions of man for his sovereign purposes. Your world, my world, our world, as hard as it, as hard as it is to understand, 
as mysterious as it is at times, is never out of control. Your sin, my sin, the sin of others against us, while God is never the author of it, He is the mysterious ruler over it. And the evil that seems to be thriving over there without consequence will be judged by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that certainly was the case with with Abimelech in, in our story. It's judgment that the Lord was after, and it was judgment that came down hard literally on his head. Abimelech had slaughtered a thousand plus in the tower of Shechem, and now he turns to the city in this rage of anger and revenge and vengeance and pride. And he turns to the city of Thebes to do the same, and an anonymous woman who for some unknown but foreordained reason in the flooding, and you think about fleeing your house, what would you grab? My girl grabbed a millstone as she fled at her house and carried it up in this tower. What's a millstone? A millstone is a kitchen appliance. It's a rock. It's a big rock, four inches thick, 18 inches in diameter. It's designed to crush grain. And here she is with this millstone, and she sees Abimelech come close to the tower, and she hurls it down, and it cracks him and crushes him. And in this tale of stones, it ends up being the literal stone of judgment. It's a sobering, ironic end to an ugly reign. Another man, another proud man is humbled by the judgment of God through the perceived weakness of a woman. You see, God will not be mocked. As we close, is there, any, is there any hope, any more hope in this account beyond the comfort of God's sovereignty in all things? Well, I think there is. And I think it's in the first part of chapter 10, the very tail end of the passage that I read. It's short. It lacks detail. But what it communicates is this. The steadfast love of the Lord remains. Our passage began in chapter 8, verse 35. They did not show steadfast love. It's that great Hebrew word that we've talked about a thousand times, chesed. Kind of an undefinable word. Faithful love. Loving kindness. The people forgot but the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And so Yahweh, what we see in chapter 10, is Yahweh doesn't even wait for His people to cry out. He sovereignly orchestrated all this. He has judged the wickedness of Abimelech. And He raises up two more deliverers, the sixth and seventh judge. We know very little about them, but we do know that these two periods, that for 45 years, Israel seems to be spared the drama and the destruction that they endured under Abimelech. 
The rest that they had seen before is not given. It doesn't say that. We won't see that again. But it is, brothers and sisters, more grace. More grace. God is still, despite them, God is still pursuing his people. They may have forgotten him, but he has not forgotten them. And this same grace is yours and is mine today. Brett and I, when we were away, we were rehashing old praise songs from the 80s. And one of the ones that we were remembering was, I'm forever grateful, an old vineyard song. You did not wait for me to cry out to you but you let me hear your voice calling me. And that's what I want to end with this morning. The stone of witness calls us to remember. A stone of wickedness reminds us of the enemy within. A stone of judgment reminds us that God will make things right and that he has made us right through Jesus. You see, it's because of Jesus. It's because of that rock of judgment that fell on the rock of ages It's because of that that Yahweh's mercy is our is ours, that Yahweh's grace is ours. Now this period is far from the end of the story. The true king has come and will come again, and in dark days, this is truly our hope. But remember these stones. Remember these stones. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this difficult passage, this difficult period of history. And we in our minds want to Make these stones, this stone of witness, this stone of wickedness, and the stone of judgment, we want to make them mental Ebenezers in our minds that would keep us clinging to the cross of Jesus. Father, we thank you for the reminder that when when things are bad, when things seem out of control, your word teaches us that they never are. But we serve a sovereign, good God who is ever pursuing his people. Oh, Father, don't stop. Hold us fast, we pray, for our good, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.